Read with me Isaiah chapter 49, verses 8 through 16. Thus says the Lord, In a favorable time I have answered you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit desolate heritages. Say to those who are bound, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Along the roads they will feed, and their pasture will be on all barren heights. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways will be raised up. Behold, these will come from afar, and lo, these will come from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Simon. Shouts of joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But, Z- but Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. The word of the Lord. Stress is a word life teaches us to spell. We are all well acquainted with worry. That wicked worm that eats us from the inside out. Which goes to show we are not as clever as we imagine. Bird-brained is hardly a compliment. Yet our feathered friends have the right idea. They never sweat the details, like fretting about where their next meal is coming from. They know Jehovah Jireh is on the job. The lilies know this too. They leave their fragrant finery up to the Father, we would do well to take note. I remind myself time and again. Worry is a long jump off of a short pier. It gets us nowhere we want to be. Better to invest our spiritual currency in the bank of heavenly trust. No deposit, no return. All right, so the first scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. Think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. 
Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive commendation from God. Um, And then I'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. I think we all knew this was coming, this passage. (laughs) No one can serve two masters, For a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, Your your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to the span of your life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, sorry, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. This is the word of God. Drawing from the Sermon on the Mount, that charter of discipleship, and from 1 Corinthians 1-4, through the background of what it takes to create authentic Christian community. We've been looking for the last number of weeks at the qualities that form a Jesus-following church. It may come as a surprise to us, then again it may not, that not all churches think following Jesus is particularly important. Some churches think that the words of Jesus are too hard for today, that that they don't make sense for the world as it is. And so they are for a time yet to come. And we shouldn't worry too much about them. Our tradition formed by Anabaptists from continental Europe, shaped by the pietists of North America and the Wesleyan holiness movement and the evangelicals, say, no, we need to take Jesus' words seriously. When, When he says something, it matters. It mattered to Paul, who reflects on the words of Jesus as he writes to that dysfunctional church in Corinth. And so we've identified a number of go into a Jesus-following community that it's, that it's led by a different king. 
by King Jesus. That it's shaped not by a king who is mighty and powerful and to be feared, but by a king who went to the cross. It is a third way kind of community that stands between the excesses of the modern world and calls us to another approach. It is a community that seeks wisdom, not always answers, but in the ambiguity of life, figures out how to move forward. It is a right living community that takes holiness of life, holiness of society seriously. And it is a solid foundation community, community built not on our aspirations, but on the promise of Jesus. And it is a non-anxious community, which is maybe the hardest of all, because we certainly live in an anxious world. The drug companies make millions of dollars on anti-anxiety drugs. And even though we have a 10 to 1 advantage over the entire world in the number of nuclear weapons we possess, and 30 missiles for every country on planet Earth, each capable of delivering at least 10 warheads, that's 300 per country, we found out this week that we need more because we live in an anxious world. We worry. We worry about the big picture and we worry if our retirements will last, if our health will hold out. Will our kids grow up to responsible adulthood? And by the way, that doesn't go away just because your kids turn 30. We worry. We live in anxious times. We worry. Paul, having described a third way between classical wisdom and religion, a way grounded in Christ now in chapters, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, summarizes how to apply this third anxious presence in the world. He's making a summary statement in chapter 4 before digging into the questions of Christian community that the Corinthian church had presented him. 1 Corinthians 5 to, to 12 is Paul trying to answer a series of questions about, okay, how do we live? How are, if you, basically, the Corinthian church is saying to Paul, if you're so mad about the way we're being church, tell us the right way to do it. And Paul obliges. But before he gets to chapter 5, he spends four chapters framing his point of view. And verses 1 through 5 are as good a summary as any. Paul begins by reminding the Corinthians of the centrality of a Christ-focused servanthood. We are called to be servants of one another in the church, not because you're deserving and I'm wonderful. Would that it be at that easy? Because if it were that easy, we could measure effective standards of worthiness for servanthood and 
discern fairly straightforward if you were worth my time and effort, if you were worth my energy and capacity, if you were worthy of my servanthood. But isn't that the catch? Do, do servants ever get to determine whether their service is worthy or not? Whether the one they give service to is deserving or not? Paul says, remember that it's Jesus that calls us to be servants of one another. That it's, it's because of who Christ is that we can serve one another. Not because of who the one we serve is. Because frankly, the one we serve isn't deserving. But Christ is. And so we serve not out of not out of creating mutual obligations, not out of creating a tat-for-tat tat kind of relationship where I do for you and therefore you do for me, and I do for you, therefore I have an you have an obligation to support me. It's not, not a life of log-rolling, a life of discipleship, according to Paul, a life that binds us together across our different points of view, that had led the Corinthians to factions. The way forward is to serve one another because of who Jesus is and for no other reason. And that means, in verse 2, that we focus on our faithfulness, on our following Jesus daily in life, on what our Anabaptist forebears called discipleship. The German word they used was Nachfolge, following. And I think it's fascinating that the seminal book that the 20th century theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote was entitled Nachfolge. We call it the cost of discipleship in English. But that, that word, Nachfolge, to follow Christ, not just to sort of imitate him or kind of ask WWJD, what would Jeff do? <laughs> what would Jesus do? But to, not to do that, but, to, add, but to, to make our lives a pursuit, to purpose our lives in such a way that the character of Jesus is what don't just emulate, but what absorbs into our very being. That the essence of our life takes on the character of Christ in the everyday. And for Paul, this meant to a church that was governed by factions and arguments and different points of view, it meant that you suspend judgment in each other. Verse 3, you don't judge each other. You don't even judge yourself. Get off that grading scale. There is no curve in discipleship. It's about your life taking on more and more and more the character of Jesus. And that happens at different rates of speed at different points in our lives. And so Paul says, give yourself a break and stop judging yourself. And more importantly, judging each other. 
because none of us meet the standard of Christ-likeness. So we can live into it without demanding from one another that they meet our scale. Now, you might be asking, well, where's accountability in all of that? And I recognize that accountability is part of the DNA of Madison Street Church, that, that spiritual accountability to God and to one another is one of the, one of the pillars of our congregational life together. But that accountability is centered again back in verse 1 in the centrality of Christ-focused servanthood. Accountability really isn't to each other. The accountability is mutual accountability to Christ. That's how we measure faithful discipleship. Not on whether you've been good to me or I've been good to you, but have we been Christ-like in the world with each other and with others? That's why Paul in verses 4 and 5 then says it's not about our capacity to judge, it's about God's capacity to judge. He will speak into us the truth that we need to hear. When I led, when I co-led group therapy sessions with folks who were coming out of addictive lifestyles, one of the things that we said over and over again as people in group would share was, more will be revealed. You tell me your story now, but more will be revealed. More will get unpacked as we go forward together as a group. In community organizing, we learn that there are no permanent allies and no permanent enemies, only permanent interests. More will be revealed. And I think that's part of what Paul is trying to say to us in this passage in 1 Corinthians, that that in our quest to be Christ-focused, more will be revealed. The layers of our our, our unwillingness to follow Christ will get peeled back. More will be revealed. We will realize that it's not about how things shake out in the moment that matters. It's about our permanent interest in becoming Christ-like, in transformation. That really matters. And all of that causes us to turn, Paul says, from focusing on my capacity to get things done and to trust instead in God's capacity to change my life. That none of us have arrived at the point of what our Wesleyan roots would call full sanctification. We are instead on a journey in fits and starts, trying to make sense of the world we live in, trying to deal with the anxieties we feel about the issues we face. 
And Paul's word to us is not a facile, oh, just trust God, everything will work out. But it's a, pay attention to Christ-likeness in your life. That's all that matters. Working out isn't in the equation. Trusting in God's power to transform you is all that matters. Jesus speaks to that in Matthew 6, 24 to 34. And I not help this, but use this cartoon. The guy says, I used to think I couldn't serve both God and money. Then I discovered multitasking. <laughs> and that's the way we like to approach our discipleship these days, like we can multitask our way into the kingdom. Like I can pay attention to the calls and claims of discipleship on my life and I can be all that I can be. Not so much, Jesus says. He begins in 624 with a, with a call to fidelity, a call to faithfulness, a call to take seriously the fact that you can't serve two masters, that you can only serve one, and that life is an everyday choice. There's an old yeah, urban legend, an old Indian proverb that says, how do, you, uh, how do you know which way to go in life? How do you know what to do when confronted with two choices? You, well, you say, you go with the one that you say Sikkim to, because there are two dogs that we can unleash in life. The dog of anger or the dog of obedience. And the one that wins is the one you say Sikkim to. Our lives are a call to fidelity. Will we follow Christ or will we follow something else? That's the choice that Jesus lays before us. It's the choice of our everyday experience. But it's not the only thing Jesus calls us to. He unpacks what that fidelity looks like. He says, first of all, Implicit in the call to serve God is a call to sustainability. Don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, about your body, what you'll wear. Life is more than these things. Don't worry about them. I don't know about you, but man, I, I, I look at the checkbook every day. I make sure I know what the, the account balance is. I worry about it. It's a struggle not to. It's folly not to in our society. None of us who have taken on the role of mortgage owner, I thought I was going to say homeowner, but mortgage owner, <laughs> none of us do that and just sort of go, yeah, whatever. We sweat those details. We scrape and scrimp and save and hope. We worry. But Jesus calls us to 
a life of sustainability. Don't worry about that stuff. I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. And then he does this curious sidebar in verses 28 to 30. He says, you worry about clothes? Look at the flowers. Solomon was never clothed with such splendor as the lilies of the field. Jesus doesn't call us to a life of hair shirts and self-denial. He calls us to see the beauty of creation and say, I own it all. Isn't that enough? I got you. What are you worried about? And then he pivots one more time and says, look, this is about a new citizenship. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and everything you need will be given to you. So don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Jesus isn't calling us to stop planning and to put on the shelf everything that is on our list of things to accomplish and get done. He's saying in becoming loyal to a new kingdom, in changing our allegiance, there are new factors involved. So stop worrying about the way things used to be. Start seeking God's kingdom. The things he said in chapter 5. The Beatitudes. Being salt and light. Living out a lifestyle of love. Be those things, Jesus said. And all the stuff you're worried about, it'll take care of itself. It'll sort itself out. The call of the gospel is not a call to have a wonderful middle-class American life. Wish it were. My life would be easier. Your life would be easier. The call of the gospel is to take on a radically new allegiance. To say, Jesus, you're in charge. Not in that crazy country western, Jesus, take the wheel because I'm driving on ice at 60 miles an hour. But in my life, in my everyday choices, not in the middle of crisis after I've screwed things up so badly, but in the everyday, everyday, help me live by the kingdom way. And the promises of Isaiah read to us at the beginning of worship and the sermon of Jesus and the letter of Paul, the path to a non-anxious life is before us. It really is. It begins when we accept that God has placed his trust in you. Think about this for a minute. That's what, that's what Paul's getting at with the Corinthian church. He's saying, look, it isn't so much about you placing your trust in God.
Do you realize that God has placed His trust in you? Do you realize that the only way God's work of transforming the world, God's work of healing the cosmos, the only way that's going to happen is with the ecclesia, the called out, the church. The church is God's tool of reconciliation for the universe. And you're all thinking, oh man, God is such a knucklehead. How on earth could he trust me for that? Yeah, well, good question. But that's what God says. He places his trust in us and he says, the future of the cosmos is in your hands, church. Not to rule it with power, not to glorify yourselves, but to heal it with my love. That's where becoming a non-anxious community begins, by reframing from that which sits as idols in front of us, consuming our lives, and turning instead to the fact that God has called you and me into relationship together for the purpose of healing the world around us. That means accepting that God's stubborn loyalty to you calls forth a stubborn loyalty to God. That, that we are not simply called to live life as if God's my buddy, but that God has a stubborn loyalty for us and that He calls forth from us, that He invites us to a life that is stubbornly loyal to God, which means when things look dark, when things create anxiety in us, we remember, oh yeah, God's got this. God's in charge. And so that means we stop worrying about stuff and embrace, again, what our Anabaptist forebearers called glassenheit, yieldedness, the surrender of our souls up to that higher power. We in the West, in the 21st century, in the postmodern era, are much more comfortable with the words of Dylan Thomas than the words of Jesus. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the night. Thomas told us. And we go, yes! Fight! Go out on, go out standing like a man. But the call of the gospel is surrender ourselves to the one who went to the cross and not even the most gruesome form of execution could hold him back. He rose. Put your trust in that, not in your capacity to rage against the night. There is a great scene in the movie Apollo 13. This morning I'm mourning the loss of Bill Paxson, who, who starred in that movie as well. But this great scene where Kevin Bacon and Bill Paxson and Tom Hanks cramped into this space capsule, are arguing with each other as the air is escaping 
out the damaged Apollo 13 service module. And Tom Hanks playing Commander Jim Lovell finally cuts them off and he says, we've got to stop this because we're just going to keep bouncing around off the walls and be right back here with less oxygen. You have to stop worrying about stuff. Start embracing the invitation of the gospel to yield our lives to the one who says, I got you. I got this. It's going to be okay. It may not be okay the way you think you want it to be okay. Because, oh yeah, not being in charge means not being in charge of the outcome. But it'll be okay. Yield to me. Let me be God. And becoming a non-anxious community means that our life priorities are to be shaped by God's priorities. You can't serve two masters. God's priorities are the ones that matter. So what do we do about all of that? I'd suggest four questions for our contemplation First of all, what are God's priorities for this place and time? For us to be God's people in Riverside in the, in the year 2017, what are God's priorities for us? I have some ideas about that. I bet you do too. That should be part of our conversation. What are God's priorities for us? Can I let go of my worry? And can I experience Galassenheit? Can I experience the joy of being yielded? Because Galassenheit isn't just about sort of sour self-surrender. You know, God, here, you can have my life. It's a joyful yielding. It's, thank God I don't have to be in charge. God's in charge. I can let Him rule. I can let Him reign. But that also means, can I let go of my need for proof? We 21st century Westerners, we want God to prove stuff before we'll, you know, it's, it's that whole Reagan thing, trust but verify. <laughs> yeah, God, I'll trust you. Why don't you show me one? You're God, okay? Just once more, okay? Then, then, then I'll trust you. Can we let go of that? Can we simply trust God to be God? And that leads to a fourth question. Can we believe in a God who is foolhardy enough to trust in me? It's theology according to Groucho Marx. Can you be part of a club crazy enough to let you in? Can you be part of a kingdom that would want you to be one of its citizens? That's the challenge. That's the invitation. That's the hope. That's the good news. It took a special theologian, Porter Wagoner, circa 1955. I'll bet the number of people in this room that have ever heard of Porter Wagner is a very small universe. Just a quick show of hands. Anybody ever heard of Porter Wagner? Oh, yeah, I see those hands. Thank you. Man, we're on the cusp of revival here. 
Porter Wagner's number one hit in 1955 in the country western charts was a song entitled A Satisfied Mind. How many times have you heard someone say, if I had money, I could do things my way. But little they know that it's so hard to find one rich man in ten with a satisfied mind. Once I was waiting in fortune and fame, everything I dreamed for to get a start in life's game. But suddenly it happened, I lost every dime. But I'm richer by far with a satisfied mind. Money can't buy back your youth when you're old, or a friend when you're lonely, or a love that's grown cold. The wealthiest person is a pauper at times, compared to the man with a satisfied mind. When life has ended, my time has run out, my friends and my loved ones, I'll leave, there's no doubt. But there's one thing for certain, when it comes my time, I'll leave this old world with a satisfied mind. Yeah, maybe a little too Hallmark card-ish, but Porter Wagner did discover Dolly Parton. <laughs> but a satisfied mind, however we frame it, however we understand it, however the gospel impacts our lives on this Transfiguration Sunday, on this Sunday before the season of Lent begins, the call still the same. Let go of your need to control. Let God be God. And in that twin understanding of nachfolge, of following and surrendering, glassenheit, we will find a satisfied mind. Thanks be to God for His Word.